Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Jacob Jarvis. On today's edition, we're going to discuss Liz Truss and her new American pals. But before we begin, we wanted to say thank you to all of you who support us on Patreon. Times are tight in the podcasting world with advertising budgets being cut, which means we rely on you more than ever. If you can find £3 a month or more, you will really be helping us to keep going. Plus, you'll get episodes early and ad-free. Search Patreon The Bunker Podcast or visit the link in the show notes to find out more. Now, on to the show. Liz Truss has been having a jolly time in America in a desperate bid to resurrect her political career by hanging out with some of the world's worst people. She recently spoke at CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference in Maryland, just outside of Washington, D.C. Some of those in attendance were easy to recognise, like Donald Trump and Nigel Farage, but others were less well known. Who were her unusual new friends and how was the former PM of only 45 days, let's remember, coming across to people in the United States? Here to discuss this with me is American politics reporter Ben Jacobs, formerly of The Guardian US, who has written for a dazzling range of US news outlets. Welcome to The Bunker, Ben. Thanks for having me. Ben, can you first just describe CPAC to me a little bit? It used to seem like a really big deal and now it seems very, very lowbrow. Yes, that's a good way to describe it, that CPAC was sort of the biggest conservative conference of the year um, that became a big event in sort of in and around Washington, D.C. And in recent years, the attendance has fallen that for a variety of reasons has become much more narrowly focused on sort of a narrow range of Trumpism that it's sort of for the the head of it, a former corporate lobbyist has faced an array of sexual misconduct and financial impropriety scandals. So that it's mm. very much sort of a Trumpy show that's very much would be aligned with sort of the very narrow but specific slice of conservatives in the U.S. who would be uh, who would be in tune with the worldview of someone like Steve Bannon. What what is the point of it now? Because it seems to me maybe in the past it might have been able to to set an agenda, but Donald Trump now is kind of a or law unto himself and has his complete own agenda. And we know it would appear that conservatives in the U.S. are just completely in hock to him. So what's the point of it? I mean, it's a Trump show. It's entirely a Trump show and appearing to sort of not just that, I wouldn't say that all conservatives are in hock to Donald Trump, that there's sort of an array of opinions on him, you know, that they're ranging from those who, you know, are, would be never Trumpers, those who grudgingly support him, those who support his policies, but have concerns about his personality and those who are all in. This is the all in show. This is the people who, have no reservations, no concerns about Donald Trump, that this is fully about the that specific slice of those who are 100% with Donald Trump. This is full Trump fandom. You wrote a piece for Politico with the headline, Bewildered Conservatives Greet a Fallen British Prime Minister. Were most people simply confused to see Liz Truss there? That would imply that most people knew who Liz Truss was. <laughs> uh, that, that, that she, you know, it's clear from my piece that you know, she was only prime minister for six six weeks or so. And Americans don't quite pay attention to British politics with the same focus that Brits pay attention to American politics. That it's it's a little bit of a sideshow and someone who had a bit part in a sideshow, a cameo in a sideshow, doesn't, doesn't necessarily register. Uh, the folks who knew who she was uh, we're far more skeptical, to say the least, that there's you know, the idea that this is someone who you can start from voting Remain to being a former Lib Democrat who sort of knew the entire background of stuff, that she was not 
an ideological fellow traveler, but someone who just was drifted in here to sell a book and, you know, was looking for any port in a store. Did it feel like there's any sort of appetite for a Liz Truss character on any kind of speaker circuit out in the US? Or there's any anyone who really, it would seem, does want to to hear from her? Or is she just being used to to demonstrate by some of the people at CPAC that, look, our our brand of conservatism is a is a swell that's happening across the world and she is representative of that? Well, I think there's a little bit of both, that there's certainly a much bigger reception for uh, the, uh, Bukele, the president of El Salvador, Javier Millet, the president of Argentina, and even for Nigel Farage, who at this point is really a staple of these things, that it's hard to go to a conservative event and for Nigel Farage not to be there, that there's, there's sort of the built-in fan base, that she sort of has some built-in credibility with the title, but at this point it's sort of trying to trying to figure out how to how to make a career there that the phenomenon that uh seems seems the best the most likely you know to describe this would be the sort of big in japan analogy of the type of bands that weren't able to cut in the u.s and try to make her and <laughs> that she's clearly hasn't been able to cut it in the uk and it's a bit of a punchline there but you know for hundreds of years people from europe have been coming to the u.s to start over and start afresh and she's just following in their footsteps People didn't know who she was before she spoke, but since she spoke, was anyone enamoured by her in any way, shape or form? Or did she just say the same kind of stuff that everyone was saying, pretty much the deep state, blah, 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 blah? Just just the same stuff and very much trying to cast it into a Trumpian tone and trying to cast her faults in the narrative around how Donald Trump was foiled. There are certainly plenty of speakers at the conference, you know, that glorified January 6th, who talked about how Donald Trump was the victim of a deep state conspiracy. This was sort of her attempt to recast her story in a way that sort of jibed with the people who had attended and and were in sort of the half full ballroom and paying attention that this was, you know, she was, she was trying to make herself uh, be viewed in the same way, suffer the same martyrdom that uh, from the deep state that Donald Trump did. Our conservatives on this side of the pond are having a bit of an existential crisis at the moment, I would say, which it feels somewhat like you've been having over there as well. But one issue we've seen at the minute, there's a bit of a row over comments made by certain MPs and people they've associated with and beliefs they've associated with. And one thing I found interesting was seeing Liz Truss cozying up to former Trump advisor Steve Bannon. What's he up to now? What's his role in that kind of right-wing sphere? He is still very influential with certain certain groups that the event was very much built on the base of his sort of podcast online show, The War Room, that if CPAC in years past was for Fox News viewers, this was for viewers of Steve Bannon's War Room um, and still, still certainly plays a key role, key role in that stuff. And, uh, you know, she appeared with him on the show that Elise Stefanik, a former establishment Republican member of Congress who's considered potential vice presidential candidate, appeared with him. Mm. Dennis Kucinich, who used to be a left-wing Democrat member of Congress who had a failed run for president, appeared for, with him at CPAC. This is that he's still trying to be a kingmaker and sort of wield his influence. And he certainly does wield a fair amount of influence on the American right still. Fox News seems quite extreme in a lot of ways to me. Where is he pushing that boundary further you said it was kind of it used to be fox news and now it's more the war room side of things where how much further does it go i'm significantly further that fox news um in the u.s suffered a real ratings hit um in the aftermath of the 2020 election when they were trying to insist on the fact that 
Donald Trump lost the election and sort of these more right wing alternatives like Newsmax and OANN jumped in the ratings. That's mostly receded, but it's still very much towards the Trumpist uh, mega wing that, you know, the controversy that Liz Truss is facing right now over Steve Bannon praising Tommy Robinson Mm. uh, on air, you know, that Tommy Robinson would not make Fox News in the U.S., um, that 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 he would probably be a be a bridge too far, let alone uh, Bannon holding up copies of the Economist and Financial Times, implying that those publications had taken down a conservative prime minister. Yeah, that probably is slightly more nuanced uh, for for Fox News, which would uh, keep less extreme and less elaborate. Is there anyone at CPAC who does kind of push back on the utter nonsense? I mean, this this consideration that. The Financial Times and The Economist are part of some sort of deep state. And then, yeah, talking about Tommy Robinson, who is a just a completely vile individual. Is there anyone within there who is pushing back or is it actually just a platform for these these unfortunately charismatic but quite horrible people to say literally anything they want and people will just accept it as some sort of gospel if they admire them for whatever reason? No, because they don't show up, that it's a much smaller event, that they were two U.S. senators and certainly less than 10 members of Congress, yeah. an event that used to be much bigger and much, much wider that uh, you know conservatives were sort of lording over, that 10 years ago, Paul Ryan, Chris Christie, John Bolton, and Joe Scarborough were at CPAC, and now they aren't, but instead you have... Liz Truss, <laughs> that, it's, that, it's, that it's the type of thing that sort of this is appealing to a very, very specific slice of the American right, that it's less of a broad tent than it used to be. And it sort of is a very narrow tranche, but has a certain historical appeal from the fact that it used to be a, a bigger event that uh, CPAC was celebrating that Donald Trump just broke Ronald Reagan's record for the most appearances at this event. I'd like to ask you about some of the specific people there. So when it comes to the the main acts, let's describe them as, which makes it sound like it's some sort of awful music festival, I suppose. But who were the who were the headliners and the, the more blockbuster people and what did they have to say? I mean, certainly the, the big headliner was, of course, Donald Trump, who uh, celebrated that the election in 2024 will be Liberation Day, you know, casting this like World War II and the allies rolling in to save America from uh, from Joe Biden. You know, other than that, it was not as big a deal as it was that Javier Millet had an hour long shtick before you had Bolsonaro's son, because Bolsonaro, the older Bolsonaro, of course, is currently banned from travel because of ongoing criminal investigations in Brazil, that you had Senator J.D. Vance, you had Elise Stefanik, who I mentioned, that it it was not as high wattage as it used to be. And it was, as you mentioned, sort of low rent, that this was sort of the most hardcore MAGA folks that you would get, that Governor Christy Nome mm. um, of South Dakota, that it was sort of people auditioning to be Trump's vice president, um, Vivek Ramaswamy, the businessman who briefly ran for president, that this was high class. Did we learn anything from it whatsoever other than, you know, that these people are going to run along these lines? Or was there is there any insight we can particularly glean from this event anymore? Well, I think from this event, it's sort of a real sense of sort of how much of this very narrow Trumpist slice of the, of the movement is that, you know, what sort of stood out to me is how much January 6th was legitimately being glorified there. That, you know, this is something that folks have initially were very wary from. And at this point, it almost felt like a 
a family reunion that, you know, everyone, this was a chance for everyone who'd stormed the Capitol to show up that, you know, you couldn't help but run into people there. They're wearing shirts emblazoned with the face of Ashley Babbitt, who was the woman shot by Capitol Police actually physically entering the House chamber. They had a January 6th themed pinball machine. Um, the th- this was very much, you know, that there are speakers who had been involved in it, there are attendees who had done pr- prison time. I actually talked to one unknowingly who had not only stormed the Capitol on January 6th, but did so apparently while wearing an ankle bracelet because he was already on monitored release. What is the what's the atmosphere like at these sort of places? Because it feels strange to me that it's it looks weirdly formal, but then also completely chaotic at the same time. And I can't really imagine these type of characters all in some sort of cohesive unit discussing. Because they're not talking about policy. When I've ever been to a a political conference, there's there's actual there's debate going on, and this just seems like people getting riled up. It feels like people hanging out before a sporting event or something. Well, yes. Well, it's, I mean, it's worth noting that this is an event that people are charged to attend and it's sort of running out of fewer and fewer things. But, you know, there's sort of tickets at hundreds of dollars a pop to go that this is normally something that, you know, people would book an entire vacation around and spend, you know, the lowest, the, normally the cheapest ticket for, for an adult would be $295. That this is really the idea of, you know, that this is a money-making enterprise, or at least theoretically is. The, the attendance has been down and things are all sort of pushing the wrong way, that there's not the incentives there to attract sort of casual ongoers. It's to attract the people who are willing to spend a t- bunch of money and turn this into a weekend trip and book an expensive hotel room. Is this actually a, a good thing for Trump at the moment? Or conversely, is it actually, as someone who has has quite a lot of money troubles, it would appear, Basically, is this actually an, an opportunity missed for him where he could have run his own event and made loads of cash instead of all these people going to CPAC and him having to take a split from it? Well, well there's no split from it. It all goes to the organization, but it okay. is he also doesn't have to pay to put on the event. That putting on a big rally costs a significant amount of money. There's a significant investment. This this doesn't necessarily involve that. Yeah. Um, so that, that, that would be the that'd be incentive. But at, at this point, it's worth knowing that he's really the only draw that it's hard to think how many people would show up for this without Donald Trump because other conservatives are not really interested in the event anymore that this was an event that used to have a heavy libertarian presence and they're sort of fighting through the libertarians versus sort of the the Ron Rand Paul types versus the Mitt Romney types this was the place that Ted Cruz had been going to for a decade and using it to sort of build up his public profile initially um, and now this is just uh, just a Trump show um, that sort of last year Ron DeSantis didn't come, that that it's sort of this is not appealing to conservatives in general. This is appealing to specific Trump fans, that they normally do a presidential straw poll. Um, obviously, Donald Trump is very likely to win, uh, but they didn't they dispense with that. This was simply about who would be Donald Trump's vice president and dismiss Nikki Haley, who sort of went almost unmentioned, uh, save as a punchline from stage, mm-hmm. as someone who spoke at the event last year and has a relatively conservative record. Were there any sort of smaller name people who, although they might not be household names or over here in Britain, we may not have heard of them, but that do feel particularly concerning to you who we we maybe should focus more attention on? Uh, One key name who's gotten some attention is Jack Posobiec, who's sort of a right-wing influencer who uh, had been banned from the event in years past and now has a main stage that he was had made comments at an event about you know celebrating the end of democracy and 
half seriously, if not fully seriously, uh, with Bannon at a pre-event on Wednesday. Uh, Posobiec is sort of best known for promoting the Pizzagate conspiracy theory and the claims that somehow Hillary Clinton was involved in a child molestation ring happening in the basement of a pizza restaurant in Washington, D.C. that led to someone showing up at the pizza restaurant with a gun. There's the presence of around January 6th of folks involved in the efforts to overturn the, the election, that Jeff Clark, who is the lone Trump official who is willing to overturn the election, a legal advisor who's not a lawyer named Tom Fitton was there talking about the need for uh, justice for folks involved in January 6th and, you know, pardon for these folks who, you know, who were, he was essentially casting as martyrs. Mm. This has sort of become, you know, the Trump world extended universe with folks who are, would be considered on the edges, but are increasingly taking on a more cohesive role within what the parties become in the Trump era now that we are eight plus years into it. Mm. Trump's position as the the GOP candidate seems pretty much cemented. Did we see from this, are there, is there a new generation of of his team maybe and the people that might gravitate around him? Because obviously we've seen Steve Bannon in the past and we look back to his last campaign and Roger Stone's involvement and people like that. Did we get any insight of maybe new sort of clingers on that he might be using to shape his his strategy? I, I don't think it's so much new clingers on, uh, but certainly uh, how folks are trying to attract themselves as the mantle and what it means to be Trump in a post-Trump world that obviously candidates, but figures like J.D. Vance, a senator from Ohio, Elise Stefanik, that sort of successors to Trump and trying to define their own sort of spins on what it means to be Trumpy because you can advocate many, if not most, political positions and do so from a MAGA perspective. And some of this is sort of getting the shape on what the world looks like in the post-Trump years and what figures take that place, whether there's more of an emphasis on sort of style or sort of specific trade policies and what what that world looks like. That That is still sort of unclear and still to be done because, you know, it's as much about personality as actual policies, save a few things like tariffs and building a wall and sort of a more isolationist approach to foreign policy. So it's sort of who's figuring out and who's positioning themselves to take that mantle and if it's even possible to be a be a successor. If Trump's uh, candidacy is a foregone conclusion, who who are you putting your money on to be the his running mate? That depends on what the world looks like in a few months that we have plenty of time there. There's obviously, you know, the list of contenders like Elise Stefanik and J.D. Vance, who were there. Tulsi Gabbard, who also spoke there, who's a former Democrat member of Congress who ran for president, who is extremely isolationist and very anti-NATO, who's, who's liked by Bannon. Tim Scott, the senator from South Carolina, who, who ran as more of a traditional Republican. Uh, ben Carson's name has been floated, who is Trump's Secretary of Health and Human Services. Christy Noem showed up. Uh, look, it, there's, there's an array of folks who've been floated, um, obviously, at would have to be someone who is very much on Team Trump, likely to sort of add something to the ticket that Trump wouldn't. Maybe it's a woman, maybe it's a person of color, maybe both. That would be broadly what the characteristics look like. But there's enough time to do it and enough things could change. You know, that mm. the vice presidential pick is also a reaction to what things look like at the time. And, uh, you know, a week's a long time in politics and we have a few months between now and the conventions. Mm-hmm. Ben, I started off asking you about uh, Liz Truss, so I thought I'd end with a, a question on her. I wouldn't mind uh, 
you know, you over in America keeping her forever, to be honest. But do you think most Americans, and would you be grateful if we just kind of took her back and you didn't have to hear from her again? I don't think most people noticed she was here, that she skidded <laughs> around the hotel for several days afterwards in a way that was sort of a little bit odd, that this is something where speakers show up and get out. And she was just sort of lurking about there in ways that, you know, left people very confused that what, what her presence was and why she was still around. That I, I think, uh, you know, we're a big country, we wouldn't notice. <laughs> ben, thank you very much for joining me for The Bunker. Thanks for having me. Listeners, another reminder that if you enjoy the show, please consider backing us on Patreon. For £3 a month, you can get episodes ad-free and early, a shout-out on Start Your Week, and help me and the rest of the team to pay our rent. Search Bunker Patreon Podcast or follow the link in the show notes to sign up. The Bunker was written and presented by Managing Editor Jacob Jarvis. The producer was me, Chris Jones. Audio production by Robin Leeburn. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. Art by James Parrott. And music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Podmasters.